It's the afternoon of September 27th, 2023, and hundreds are marching through the streets of Toronto. They're here to show support for the Land Defense Alliance, a group of Northern First Nations who demand Ontario stop mining and exploration activity on their land. The Alliance represents five First Nations. Nishkandaga First Nation, Grassy Narrows, Wapakika First Nation, Muskrat Dam First Nation, and Kitchenamekusebininawag. It's been six months since the Land Defense Alliance came to Toronto to ask for a meeting with Doug Ford. Six months since Nishkandaga First Nation Chief Chris Munius was taken out of the provincial legislature in Toronto for shouting over question period. Six months since he vowed to resist mining and road development on his nation's land about 450 kilometers north of Thunder Bay. Now, Chris is back in Toronto with a message. Until Ontario gets their free, prior, and informed consent, Chris Munius vows to resist development on the Ring of Fire mining region in Northern Ontario. So has his predecessor, Wayne Munius. The leadership of Nishkandaga First Nation has tried to get an audience with Doug Ford three times last year. The nation is involved in two lawsuits against development on their land, and allies from across the North have rallied to protect First Nation's jurisdiction over their land. This podcast is called The Road. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Funding for this podcast comes from the Gordon Sinclair Foundation. I'm Isaac Ponnet, and you're listening to Episode 5, Resistance. Nishkanika First Nation sits about 100 kilometers south of Webequay First Nation, near the southwest end of Attawapiskat Lake. It's a signatory of Treaty 9, and its leadership says it never gave up its jurisdiction over its homelands. The nation is about a 90-minute flight north of Thunder Bay, and it sits near the Ring of Fire, a 5,000-square-kilometer mining region in northern Ontario. In fact, Nishkandaga First Nation calls the Ring of Fire their homelands. The region is rich with nickel and chromite, two of the minerals needed to build clean technologies and batteries. And when the previous Ontario government was keen to mine the Ring of Fire, they made an agreement to negotiate with the nine Matawa First Nations, including Nishkandaga First Nation. Then there was a change of government. We're going to work with the people of the North. We're going to work with the First Nations. We're going to respect the treaties that are in place right now. In 2018, Premier Doug Ford's government was voted in to lead Ontario, and negotiations came to a halt. Here's Chief Wayne Munius at a special chief's assembly in 2018. And yet our First Nation is not, uh, has not been contacted, has not been involved in terms of how, how our consent is going to be uh, given to these projects. In 2019, Ford ripped up the previous government's agreement to negotiate with the Matua First Nations and instead made new ones with First Nations that were ready to support mining. That's Martin Falls and Webequay First Nations. Nishkandaga First Nation was cut out of talks, but leadership wasn't ready to give up. 
Instead, it looked to its allies. I'm, uh, my name's Charles Hukuma. I'm from Madawabaski First Nation. Uh... Hukuma is an advisor who offers consulting services about environmental and indigenous issues. His home in Attawapiskat First Nation is just under 400 kilometers east of Nishkandaga First Nation. It's not inside the Ring of Fire, but the water of the Ring of Fire's muskeg bogs and fens flows from the Attawapiskat River up to Attawapiskat First Nation. And in 2021, Hukuma was an advisor for the nation. That's when it joined Nishkandiga and Fort Albany First Nations to first call for a moratorium on Ring of Fire development. There's so, so much activity going on in the, in the uh, Ring of Fire, you know, exploration going on. And we have to understand what's going on and what the impact could be. And we don't know what the impact will be now, you know. You know since the uh, discovery of the Ring of Fire, you know, they've been drilling that place for a long time. I'm pretty sure there are negative impacts. And we're not just that. I, I don't think it's being assessed right. The three nations called for Canada to let an indigenous governing body assess the impact of mining the Ring of Fire before the Crown would allow any mining or road development in the region. You know, we need to, to do our own assessment in order to understand that. And how do we move forward with, with those impacts? One thing I've always said, you know, I mean, mining is good, you know, mining is good. But there is impacts to that. There is negative impacts and social impacts as well. And until the moratorium is lifted, the First Nations say they will defend their land in the courts. On behalf of Nishkandiga First Nation, Chief Wayne Munius launches a lawsuit against the Ontario government, the Crown, and Martin Falls First Nation. According to court documents, Wayne claims Ontario isn't meeting its duty to consult Nishkandiga about Ring of Fire road development under the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and the Constitution Act. The lawsuit says splitting a single road to the Ring of Fire into three separate projects creates an unnecessary burden for Nishkandiga First Nation. Three separate environmental assessments mean triple the paperwork, and Nishkandiga isn't prepared to deal with that. Here's community member Maggie Sackney in a video on the nation's website. We don't want to live like this any longer. We've been living like this for a long, long time. Nishkandiga First Nation has been under a boil water advisory since 1995. It's the longest active boil water advisory in Canada. We don't want to hear any more lies about our water being taken care of. We want it done right now for our grandkids, for our elders, and for myself as well. And the lawsuit argues that while Nishkandiga First Nation deals with this crisis, they don't have the resources to properly participate in all of these environmental assessments. In the courts, Nishkandiga First Nation seeks a ruling that would redefine what consultation on the Ring of Fire looks like. Dana Nadine Scott is a York University environmental law professor who's been speaking with Nishkandiga First Nation leadership. Nishkandiga has been asking for many years, but they're seeking opportunities to have these free-flowing conversations in person in their language to talk about projects and come to decisions on them. And it's just, maybe it's unrealistic. It's not how consultation is done right now. You know, it's you know, these are like newsletters, e-blast, webinar, like radio show, and tons and tons of technical information that's pretty difficult to kind of get a foothold in, I think, for communities. 
The First Nations lawsuit doesn't outline what consultation should look like. Instead, it leaves that up to the courts. I don't know. I'm not saying it's easy to figure out. I think it, it probably is really hard to figure out what is an effective way to do meaningful consultation in these communities right now. But, but over and over, Nishkandaga First Nation leadership has made one thing clear. Consultation happens in the community, in our, in our language that we understand. That's Chief Chris Munius speaking to reporters earlier this year. He's not alone. The concerns is the, uh, the ongoing drillings. I call it the invasion. You know, they're claiming stakes. All across northern Ontario, mining companies are claiming the right to mine land and drilling their claims to see what minerals lie beneath the Muskegon permafrost. In Ontario, prospectors can buy the rights to mine an area online without leaving their desk. And First Nations near the claim might get an email or a notice in the mail, and then prospectors can start drilling even if the land is part of a First Nations homelands. Which I call a free access on our homelands, on our traditional territory. You know, without even talking to us, without even coming to us first and say, hey, we're going to state this claim here. Are you okay with it? Can we talk to you guys? Can we come to your community? Can we talk to the elders, people, the trap plants that they have out there? Can we come and sit down with you guys? There is no dialogue from these companies. You know, we don't know who's taking claim and who's taking what. It's a violation, it's an it's a invasion on our, on our rights. And I think that's, that's something I'm not happy with right now. The First Nations own ability to control their own fate and future through their own governance structures and laws and having those respected by others has been stolen. Kate Kempton, I'm senior counsel lawyer at Woodward & Company and I work for First Nations across what some refer to as Canada. In April, 10 First Nations launched a lawsuit against the Crown over Ontario's control of Treaty 9 lands, which makes up two-thirds of the landmass of Ontario. Kempton represents the First Nations. They want jurisdiction over what happens on their homelands, including over mining projects like the Ring of Fire. It's a huge probably the or one of the most important cases attacking colonialism in Canadian history. More than 100 years ago, from 1905 to 1906, Northern First Nations signed an agreement with the Crown. Its signatories included Nishkandiga and Attawapiskat First Nation. It was called Treaty 9. And Kempton says the treaty should have been an agreement to share the land. The Crown went to the, the nations who were here, who already governed the land here, hadn't have been since the dawn of civilization. The Crown went to them and said, well, we want to get your consent, your agreement, and a treaty is an agreement, to be here ourselves, to be able to use your land. The First Nations agreed to allow the Crown to use some of the land and resources in a structure careful way. In other words, the Crown said, we will control our settlers. We will stop allowing them to run roughshod over the territory. We will control our people if you give us permission to be here, which we hadn't had before. But according to Kempton, that's not what happened. But what the Crown also did is they took the, you know, used their own language and wrote things into the written text of the treaty that the First Nations did not agree to, were not told were in the treaty, that they were then, they couldn't read English, they were then told to put their X on the written text uh, or sign it if they could write. 
And what that language was is what the Crown relies on today, seed, release, and surrender. The Crown inserted that First Nations hereby seed, release, and surrender all rights, title, and interest to and in the land. And the Crown put that language in without agreement, fraudulently got the First Nations to sign off on it, and then interpreted that to mean not only does the Crown get title, ownership over the lands, but that it gives them the right to govern solely, unilaterally govern over everything that happens on the land. Now, that's a fraud, and we are attacking it. In fact, many of the Treaty 9 First Nations say they never gave up jurisdiction over their land. Here's Chris Munius in a statement on the nation's website. In 1905, my great-grandfather signed a treaty in Fort Hope hoping that the treaty partners work together. Today, this, this has not happened, and he would be very, very sad in the state that we are living now. He never surrendered our land. He never surrendered our rights. But he knew that we never get something for nothing. This is not what he agreed to. He agreed to sharing the resources that our land has to offer so we can all prosper, Canadians, Ontarians. That's what he agreed to. But that's not happening. Part of what a country's government does is govern what happens on that land. First Nations had that and did not give that up in Treaty 9. And so the case says that they they didn't agree to give it up, the control, the jurisdiction. They retain it today. The First Nations lawsuit seeks $95 billion in damages, and it aims to restructure how Ontario and Canada make decisions about land use. What must happen today is that the Crown government's and the First Nation governments must negotiate a structured, formal, dual, or joint decision-making regime for the land. And I can't begin to tell you what exactly that will look like, but there are many around the world that we can look to, for example, you know, bilateral treaty arrangements, the NAFTA arrangement between the three countries in North America, uh, the, the European Union, um, the Maori land tribunals in New Zealand. There are many examples that could be drawn from, not copied directly, to establish, you know, dual jurisdiction uh, here. And that's really what we're hoping to have. In the meantime, it gives First Nations a tool to block development. You know, as to anything that happens within Treaty 9 territory, like the Ring of Fire mining, like the roads to the Ring of Fire, what we're saying in the case is that nothing further can happen on Treaty 9 lands without, you know, this dual consent, dual decision-making regime in place. That means if shovels hit the ground to start developing a road to the Ring of Fire, Nishkandiga First Nation could file for an injunction. That's a court order that would stop road development until Kempton's case comes to a conclusion. We, we are not going to want anything to happen in this territory until we fully understand the implications through proper study first. 
And, and until there's an ability for First Nations to uh, jointly consent, if they're going to consent, or set conditions for consent, because they're all going to be affected. And so the roads are, are within that framework of what we say the Treaty 9 case has to cover. We have the option of going to court to seek an injunction to stop those activities while our Treaty 9 court case is pending. Kempton and the plaintiffs filed their statement of claim in the Ontario Superior Court last June. What does the Ontario government say about these two cases? In an email, a spokesperson for Ontario's Indigenous Affairs Ministry said while each case is before the courts, it would be inappropriate to comment. Now, it could be months before the Ontario and federal governments file their statements of defense, the next step in the lawsuit. Kempton expects the case to move ahead this year, in 2024. And until then... The Land Defense Alliance will make sure Ontario is listening. These court cases could reshape how the Crown and First Nations make decisions about land in Canada. And resistance to development could protect the climate-cooling peatlands in the north. But at the heart of the debate about the Ring of Fire is the people who call the region home. I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with Wendy Brown. Her home in Webequay First Nation is 70 kilometers away from Eagle's Nest, the Ring of Fire mine nearest to production. Why is there mining? That's what I want to Why? Why? Did you agree to have mining in this res, or did you agree to have mining in this reserve? I haven't heard anybody say, I agreed. <laughs> I haven't heard anybody say that. It's just being done. And we're not asked. We're being, oh, this is what the, what's going to happen. There's going to be mining, you know. Okay. <laughs> the Ring of Fire is right in her backyard. I think a lot of people are betting on Ring of Fire. So they're coming after that. So I mean, what they're going to do with it and what's going to happen to us. Like, this is our reserve. And the lesson goes, well, the myth is that they're going to sell the land. You know, and the people that don't want to sell or move will be forced to leave. While we talked, Brown told me about what she's read about how mining changes the land, and about what she's heard about the economic opportunities that could come with a road. And she said that she's skeptical that the Ring of Fire will bring prosperity. That's what I know about mining. They destroy things, they destroy the land, they destroy their water, and there'll be mining over there when one of the rivers that's providing us water. I think it's better to do something out in the land instead of destroying it. That's my perspective. Because what, what will my grandkids be left with? Like when they're in, in 10 years, what are they going to have? Are they going to have these all this beautiful land?
This podcast is reported, written, and produced by me, Isaac Panay. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Funding for this podcast comes from the Gordon Sinclair Foundation. Story editing by Sandra Bartlett and Zara Kozema, with sound effects from Pixabay. If you think other people should find us, leave a comment and a five-star rating. It would really help us out. And our theme song is Gravel and Grit by Northern Points. <laughs> <laughs>